Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. Absolutely honored to have you along for the ride. And before we get going, you know this is coming. I need to give a special shout out to two different groups of people. First of all, Michigan football fans, where are you at? Our day has finally come. Mel Tucker has fallen, okay? It was, a, it was a few years there that were really rough. Paul Bunyan, of course, has returned to his rightful home in Ann Arbor. Today is a good day to be a Michigan Wolverine. So uh, that's the first group. The second group I need to give a shout-out to are the 43 brave souls that just returned from a two-week trip to Israel with Sarah Ann and I. And they got back either late, late Wednesday night or early on Thursday morning. Here's a picture of this crew. Uh, we were on a boat on the Sea of Galilee. We had a blast sitting in the places that God chose to tell his story. It was an incredible experience. Honestly, I think one of the trip participants said it best on the plane ride back home. He came over to me and he says, I got it. We came, we hiked, we learned, we laughed, we cried, and we overindulged on hummus and ice cream. Welcome to Israel, right? Yeah. Um, all joking aside, it was a life-changing trip. And I kept thinking, man, as your pastor, I would love to take all of you. Not at once, though, because that'd be too many buses, okay? Anyway, turning the corner now, for today, we get to begin a new series that we've called Fighting for Family. And it's a series that's been a long time coming for me. It's a series, and I'm hoping that it will prepare us all for what many people call, and you've heard this, the most wonderful time of the year, right? The holiday season. But because of complicated or even impossible family dynamics can feel a little bit more like the most stressful time of the year. Are you with me? Yeah. Uh, so the series is based on an observation that I think with proper expectations over this holiday season, you can actually fight for and not just fight with your family. Seriously. And if that sounds too good to be true, I'm just super excited that you're along for the ride today. Okay, so now to be honest, uh, talking about family is a little bit challenging in 2022 because our experiences of family are so diverse. I mean, just think about how Hollywood families have changed over the years. In the 1960s, and a few of you who are not millennials remember this, right? It was the Cleavers. Remember these guys? right? Wally and the Beave, like the nuclear family, mom, dad, a couple of kids in a minivan or station wagon. Not a, they didn't invent minivans yet, right? Uh, and, and then, of course, in the 1970s, it was the Brady Bunch, near and dear to my heart, like a blended family on TV. We got to kind of follow their adventures. And then in the 80s and 90s, it was the Tanners, whole lot going on with the Tanner. Still not sure about Uncle Joey. I'm just saying. What's going on with that guy, right? And then starting a little over 10 years ago, there was a show that made me cry more than I care to confess. Uh, the show Parenthood, remember this? The Bravermans. And I mean, they were a complete mess, right? And I remember thinking they're a complete mess just like real life. And that's why I think it was so much fun to watch them navigate real family experiences. But, but if you think about it, families today really do come in all sorts of flavors. Uh, some of our families are blended and some of them are traditional. Some of us are raising our kids and some of us are raising someone else's kids. Uh, may, maybe you've remarried and have adopted some kids or maybe you're, you know, you, you have some foster kids in your home. There's just so much 
diversity when it comes to families. And so as I was planning this series, I found myself thinking, like, I wonder, is there anything, thinking of family, that we all would have in common? Like, where is this, like, an all-skate? And I could only come up with two things. Okay, so, so check these out. First, here's my first observation. We all have a family of origin, and we didn't have any choice in the matter. Are you with me on this? Yeah, like, you can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your family, Right? Yeah, and, and so if you think about it, um, and I, you know, we've all, I think, had this experience. Like back in junior high, didn't you have one friend whose family was way cooler than your friends or than your family, right? Like you'd go over there and they didn't have all the rules. Like they were eating sugary cereals for dinner. They had to sleep in their clothes. They had like a cleaning service that came five times a week. So the house always looked like a Pottery Barn catalog. You know what I mean? And you were like, man, could I trade in my family for this family? Because this is just a better family. So that's the first thing. I think I would say we all have a family of origin and we didn't have any choice in the matter. Um, the second thing that I think we all have in common when it comes to family, none of your relatives are as smart as you are, right? Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. We've all thought if somebody would just, if everybody would just do what I tell them to do, they'd be fine, right? Like you're at a family Christmas party and somebody brought a karaoke machine and you wanted to grab the microphone and just address the crowd and point them out and say, you need a bath, you need to break up with her, you need to quit drinking, and you need to go back and finish your degree, right? I mean, you could fix everything in like five minutes, right? And you've had this thought. Maybe, maybe it was just me. Anyway, whatever your family looks like, what I know about you is that you want your family to be the best that it can possibly be. And that's the hope that drives this series forward. Okay, so now, when I started to plan this series, the first thought I had was, I want to go open the Bible and I want to look for good examples of families that I can sort of refer you to, right? And here's what I found. There aren't any, right? Like, not even Jesus' family was perfect. And, and so then I thought, okay, well, maybe we should expect that because if you go back to the beginning, like in the beginning, the first people, Adam and Eve, and God places them in a perfect relational environment and everything's going great until one day Adam and Eve choose to turn away from God and, and like the whole experiment of humanity goes off the rails like badly. And as the story continues, we learn that their first son, a guy named Cain, literally murdered their second son, a kid named Abel. And I was talking to my wife about this, and she looked at me and she goes, and you thought our boys had relational problems at times. I was like, well, that's a really good point, right? And then you just keep reading the stories in the Old Testament, and it doesn't get any better. In fact, the wisest man in the Bible, according to the biblical authors, right, is a guy named King Solomon. He's known for his wisdom. He wrote like Proverbs, um, and he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes. And you're reading about Solomon. What made him so wise? Well, here's the thing. I'm not sure he was as wise as everybody thinks he was because he had, you ready for this, 700 wives and 300 concubines, okay? Can you imagine navigating that relational matrix? I mean, seriously, right? It's, it's, so the Old Testament is full of just no good examples for family, some principles we could apply or whatever. But then here's the thing. You turn the page to the New Testament and something really fascinating happens. There's this early pastor named Paul who basically takes the teachings of Jesus and translates them for the Roman world. And in his letters, which make up the bulk of our New Testament, he repeatedly articulates God's design for families. So we don't have examples of descriptions of families, but we get sort of God's blueprint for families. And, and what Paul described was revolutionary. I mean, there had never been a culture or society built around the things that Paul taught. Specifically, his instructions concerning women and children were incredibly progressive. 
Like in Roman culture in the first century, women didn't have much more value in the family than the livestock. And, and children were even worse off. Uh, the children weren't even named uh, right at birth because the infant mortality rate was so high that parents wanted to make sure they were going to live before they became too attached to them. So I'm telling you, like the teachings of Jesus raised the perceived value of women and children in that world in ways that no culture on earth had done before. These were mind-blowing ideas that were as disruptive to the men as they were hope-infusing to the women and the children. And the basis for what Paul articulated in these letters was a powerful understanding of what had happened when Jesus died on the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, Paul understood that he had died for everyone equally. All the men, all the women, and all the children. In fact, Paul wrote that in light of what Jesus had accomplished on the cross, he says, here's how family relationships should work. And this is taken from a letter he wrote to Christians living in the city of Ephesus, which is in Turkey today. Here's what Paul writes. He says, you want to know what to do with family? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Not submit to one another because they're worthy of being submitted to, but submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like as a baseline, followers of Jesus need to submit to one another. Mutual submission is to be the engine of human and family relationships because everybody matters in the eyes of God and everybody was made in God's image. And practically what this means is that followers of Jesus are to put the interests of others ahead of their own. And as Paul continues, like in the next verse, he gets specific and he addresses wives. So specifically talks to the ladies who are married. And check this out. In this next verse, by the way, famously misunderstood. So please don't get up and walk out when you see this on the screen. Hang with me. You'll see what I'm doing. Here's what Paul writes. Wives, he says, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And, and here's a super interesting detail. Like when I first saw this, it was like, like crazy. The verb submit is not in the original Greek language which is the language that this letter was written in. It just says, wives, to your husbands, as you do to the Lord, which raises an interesting question. Like, where's the verb? Well, it's in the verse we read just before it, submit to one another. So this is simply one application of Paul's instruction to submit to one another. And as he continues, he presents another application. Here's what he says to the guys. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this is a radical, self-sacrificial love, where you put the interests of the other ahead of the interests of yourself. Husbands, submit to your wives as Jesus submitted himself to death for the sake of his church. I'm telling you, that instruction was a game changer in the first century. Because in the first century, husbands didn't submit to wives, ever. And they didn't give, they took. And if what Paul was saying about marriage was right, then everything they had ever been taught about marriage was wrong. And it was. Well, so not surprisingly, because this teaching was so radical and so revolutionary, Paul repeats and expands it in another one of his letters. This one is addressed to Christians in Greece. And just a quick shout out to Randy Wasink, my illustrious co-leader. He and his wife are actually in Greece. They stopped by on their way back from Israel, like one would do. And they're watching this morning from the Acropolis in Athens. So hello, Acropolis campus. There you go. So um, here's what Paul writes to Christians in Greece. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So we've already covered that. Husbands, he says, 
love your wives, and look this, do not be harsh with them. Okay, so this raises an interesting question. Why would Paul have to tell first century men not to be harsh with their wives? Don't think too hard, right? Because they were generally being harsh with their wives and their children and their pets and their neighbors. That was their culture. And Paul wants them to understand that because of Jesus, that behavior needs to stop. You're no longer who you were. You no longer have to behave like you used to behave. And you no longer are to take advantage of your wives or consider trading them in. Christian men need to treat their wives with love and respect. And so that's what he says initially. And as he continues, another application pertaining to family falls out of this as well. Another application of that command to submit to one another. Here's what Paul says. Children... He writes, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And parents, I know what you're thinking. This is our favorite verse, is it not? Yeah, right? It's actually the uh, verbiage on the best-selling sign collection um, of children's wall art at Hobby Lobby. Okay? Yeah. I, I, it's, I don't know that. I think it is. It should be if it's not, right? I, I mean, like, we've, if you have kids, you know, they can be so cute, and yet they can be so challenging at times. And so Paul writes to the children, you know, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. This, this is what it means for children to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then Paul says this, and this is interesting. He says, fathers, and it's interesting he doesn't say mothers here. Fathers, do not exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. In other, in other words, fathers, don't frustrate your offspring. And just if you'll permit me an honest confession, um, as a father of four boys, this is undoubtedly the New Testament command that I have violated the most often, right? And my boys were sitting there at the first service going, mm-hmm, yeah. And to be fair, when I frustrate them, it's often unintentional, but it happens nonetheless. It's like I'm trying to discipline them or encourage them, but I end up leaving them frustrated and discouraged. And, and something to think about, too, my wife and I were talking about this this week. Um, what's interesting is I, Paul, I think, addresses the guys specifically because well, the weight of a father's words often hits with a force that is stronger for the children. I, I read once a, a commentator said, you know, if a, if a mother's words to their children um, are like 25 pounds, a father's words will hit with 150 pounds, probably because the moms are just better at being parents than the guys. But nonetheless, fathers, do not exasperate your children or they will become discouraged. Be careful how you speak to your children. So we've talked about husbands and we've talked about wives, and we've talked about children. And honestly, that's about all you're going to find in the New Testament, specifically dealing with family. And so I made a summary slide, just for the sake of fun. Husbands and wives, submit to one another, okay? Children, obey your parents, and fathers, don't irritate your children. There you go. And, and if you just do that, everything is going to be great. But you've already caught this. Because this description of family is very idealistic. Like, I've never seen a family that does all these things right all the time. And if you do, we should talk afterwards. You can do a parenting seminar. It'll start next week. We got you on the stage, right? Yeah. But So even though this is the ideal, no one ever reaches the ideal, which brings me to the tension that's going to be our context for this series. Because you don't come from an ideal family, and neither do I. And if you're married and have kids, you haven't created an ideal family either. Like, it may be more or less ideal than the family in which you were raised, but there's a big gap between what's ideal, like this, and what's real. And in the gap lies the tension. 
which again makes me want to look to Jesus for, okay, what do we do with this tension? And, and fortunately, Jesus deals with this tension. In fact, here's the thing that Jesus did over and over and over again, and this is really good news for all of us who want to learn to fight for and not just with our families. Over and over again, Jesus pointed towards an ideal and yet refused to condemn those who fell short. I'm going to repeat that because it's absolutely critical. Jesus pointed towards an ideal, yet refused to condemn those who fell short of that ideal. And I'm telling you, this is the gospel. In fact, in almost every situation, if you listen to Jesus teach, he raises the standard for what needs to happen if we want to honor God. And, and here's an example to show you what I mean. Uh, the standard in first century Judaism said, don't commit adultery. Because, you know, Moses goes up on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, gets the Ten Commandments from God, one of the big ten, don't commit adultery. And everyone in the context knew what it meant to commit adultery. But Jesus came along and said there's actually a higher standard. And he said it this way. He said, I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I mean, it's no exaggeration to say that in that moment, Jesus made an adulterer out of like every man ever. In other words, he took a standard and raised it to impossible heights to which we would want to ask, well, okay, wait, what's going to happen to all of us men who committed your insanely expanded version of adultery? And Jesus would answer, I'm going to forgive you. Matter of fact, that's, that's the only way this is going to work. You're going to need grace. And I'm telling you, that is really good news because with Jesus, I mean, every time the standard went higher and the grace went deeper. The standard went higher and the grace went deeper. We were uh, talking in staff meeting a few weeks back and somebody brought out that verse where Jesus says, you know, be perfect as I am perfect. And they're like, you know, we were just tossing around and I finally said, he was kidding. You know that, right? And everybody's like, what do you mean he's kidding? I'm like, because you can't be perfect. He's just saying, you desperately need grace. The standard went higher. Standard's perfection, but the grace went deeper. The standard got higher and the forgiveness became richer. That was how Jesus functioned. And this is where we wonderful religious people tend to get confused because we want to go to one extreme or the other. We, we, we want to hold ruthlessly to the ideal and condemn everyone who falls short or we, don't, we want to give up on the standard completely and just go, it's all grace, don't worry about anything. But that's not what Jesus did. He came as the simultaneous embodiment of grace and truth. Not 50-50, 100-100. You're like, how does that work? I don't know, it's Jesus. It just worked, right? And then he invited people like you and me to follow his example, to exhibit grace and truth in our complicated relationships. And so when you're reading the conversations that Jesus had with people over and over again, he taught and pointed towards and celebrated an unattainable ideal and yet refused to condemn the people who fell short. And I know there's a tension there. There's a tension as it pertains to Jesus' teaching on family. Like when we think about our families, are we willing to embrace an ideal that may never, will never be a reality in our families, at least not perfectly? And will we show grace to the people in our family who fall short of the ideal? Or will we do what's easy or what's natural and decide either to abandon the ideal or to abandon grace? Again, that is 
the tension, and you see it with Jesus over and over and over and over again. In fact, I think the most profound example of this in Jesus' teaching um, was a conversation that actually had to do with family. One day, some of the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus, and they asked him, they, they said, hey, um, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And we're like, what a strange question. Like, Jesus, um, do you need a good reason to divorce your wife? Or if, like, she burns the toast and you want to get rid of her, she's out. How does that work, right? And again, it's a strange question to us. But you got to understand, in the first century, Jewish people, they had sort of developed a no-fault type of divorce. It wasn't even a legal document. All a man had to do in order to divorce his wife was to look at her three times and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. <laughs> like, no attorneys, no fees, no courts, no juries, no statements. She had to pack up and leave. And, and, and incidentally, if a woman wanted to divorce her husband, she couldn't. She had no rights at all. She was stuck. So the divorce law in Jesus' day was profoundly unfair but it was also really simple. I mean, a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason, which is why they asked Jesus, do you think it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And you say, well, the, why did the religious leaders ask Jesus this question? Well, they ask him because he's been teaching some things that make them wonder if Jesus doesn't agree with the idea of divorce as it functions in their culture. In fact, what Jesus was teaching seemed to con conflict, what, conflict with what they believed Moses had taught. And they were always trying to divide Jesus from Moses because they wanted to force people to acknowledge that Jesus couldn't be the, the Messiah, the anointed one. He couldn't have come from God because, man, he, he, if he was from God, then everything that he said and did would have to line up with Moses. So they asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And in response, Jesus said this, haven't you read that at the beginning, like as in Garden of Eden at the beginning, and the Pharisees would have wanted to raise their hands and ask a question because they weren't talking about at the beginning. They were talking about right here and right now. And they would have thought, man, Jesus, right now, couples don't get along. I mean, right now, things don't always work out. Right now, people get older and lose interest in each other. Right now, people meet other people they'd rather be with than the people that they're with. So Jesus... Just answer the question, not in the, at the beginning, but can a man divorce his wife for any, any and every reason? Like, again, right now. And Jesus, in response, says, I need to take you back to the beginning when things were ideal. The way that God, your creator, your heavenly father, intended them to be. See, and as soon as he did this, though, what happens? They're in the tension. They would have thought, Jesus, if, if you take me back to what's ideal... And it, con it, it, it conflicts with what's real. I mean, it's uncomfortable. And Jesus would say, yeah, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. And you're going to have to be too. Jesus says it this way. Haven't you read that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God, again, ideal here, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And a few of you just went, I thought the pastor made that up at the wedding. Look, it was Jesus the whole time. Therefore, right, wow, cool, yeah. Um, in other words, Jesus says, you know, I want to take you back to the Garden of Eden where everything is perfect in order to say to you, your discussion about divorce, interesting as it may be, kind of misses a really significant point. You... You've forgotten what marriage was intended to be in the beginning. And it, 
it's, it's more than a social contract. There's something mystical that goes on. When, when people get married, like, they sort of become one. And every time there's a divorce, you, you need to un-one what God made one. And that's why it's really messy relationally, like every single time. And, and, and so, you know, the, you've got to hold both the ideal and the real. Or you miss something powerful. And Jesus would say to them, I'm comfortable bringing both to you. Like, Jesus, I know that things don't always work out. And I know that there needs to be a mechanism for divorce. And I understand that we need to come up with a way to protect women in the divorce. But, but I'm not going to lose sight of the ideal. There's grace. There is grace. But there's also truth. So he says, so I'm going to remember that in the beginning, divorce wasn't a part of God's plan because divorce hurts people and God loves people. And the Pharisees responded. This is great. They pushed back. Why, which is always a great idea with Jesus. Not a great idea. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, at the time this was given, radically progressive, because if the woman was sent away without a certificate, everybody would have thought that she had cheated on her husband. So, okay, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And it's like, why did Moses come up with divorce in the first place if what you're saying is true? And Jesus replied, look at this. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Huh. But it was not this way from the beginning. Like, yep, Moses permitted it because we live in a broken world and there needs to be grace even in this, but it was not this way from the beginning. And this is tough. It's like I think they wanted to look back at Jesus and go, okay, wait, Jesus, what, what are we supposed to do with this tension? And Jesus would say, listen, in this broken world, you have to carry it or you're going to miss it. And it's like, and then they would say, but Jesus, okay, we hold to the ideal and we feel condemned by it and there's, there's grace. But like, what are you going to do to all of the divorced people? Because they're everywhere in the ancient world, just like they're everywhere today. And Jesus would respond, I'm not going to do anything to them. I'm going to do something for them. I'm going to die for them. I'm going to pay the price for their sin, just like I'm going to pay the price for everybody else's sin. And they might push back and go, but now, Jesus, it looks like you're letting us off the hook. I mean, is there a rule or is there not a rule? I mean, you got to pick. And Jesus would say, is there a rule? Is there not a rule? Yes. Yes. <laughs> it's a tension. And you dare not resolve the tension, because if you do, you lose something incredibly important. And, and that's just one example. Um, and as we explore how to best fight for our families in the coming weeks, we'll look at some others. But, but here's where all this sort of lands. If you're here and, and, and you're a follower of Jesus, like you've said, he's the Lord of my life. I want, I want him to teach me how to live. He's not just my savior, but he's, he's the Lord of my life, like what Ryan talked about last week. He's the king of my life. He's inviting you, he's inviting me to follow him into the complexities of family life and to carry that tension between what's real and what's ideal and to try as best we can to embody both grace and truth while navigating family relationships. You know, as I was prepping, I, I started thinking about friends that I know are, are here with us at Keystone or online that are just seeking for the first time. Like, they've been through a season of life that left them sort of wondering about the Creator and is there a God and what do I do with Jesus? And I started thinking, how does this land with somebody like that? I mean, like, if you, if you kind of extract the Christian parts, like the religious parts, like, what, what are we left with? And, and here's, 
I think there's still something, even if you're just someone on the outside of faith looking and you're just seeking. Because I think this is true for all of us, regardless of, of our faith situation. Um, and, I, and I think here's why I think the tension, holding that tension of grace and truth really is the best way forward. I've never met a divorced man or woman who wanted divorce for his children when they got married someday. In fact, these people have said to me, man, I want a successful marriage for my kids so, so desperately. I want something better for them than I experienced. I want something better for my grandkids. And so they don't necessarily know us when they say it, but they've refused to lose sight of the ideal when it comes to their children. And I've never talked to a single mom or a single dad who wants their kids to repeat the path of divorce. The single moms I know pray like every night over their little girls. They pray that one day they would meet a man who would love them until the day they die, even though it wasn't their experience as a mom. And, and the single dads I know, especially those that end up with, with primary custody, they pray as well. They pray that, they, that their children would have something better than what they experienced. So I'm telling you, like wherever you are on the face spectrum, we dare not lose sight of the tension of the ideal, even though it can be tempting to put it aside, even though at times it can be painful to remember, like Jesus in his amazing grace invites us to re-embrace values that 2,000 years ago changed the world. And yeah, we fall short. No, we don't always get it right. And yes, I regularly exacerbate my children. You can talk to them after service, right? And no, I, I don't always love my wife as Jesus loved the church. But I'm not going to change the rules in order to feel better about myself. So I'm willing to live with the tension between what's real and what's ideal. And to navigate family relationships with grace and truth. Because I'm convinced it really is the best way forward. It's also the first step that you need to take if you want to start fighting for and not just with your family. And so with that, um, I'd love to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time in prayer. And once again this week, um, if, if you have entered this space, and maybe you're here because you're looking for hope in an impossible family situation, you're like, I can't believe I happened um, happened upon this place and on this day, um, we would love to pray with you and, and for you. And so under the screen to your left, there'll be some volunteers that would love to just meet one-on-one -on -one, um, and listen a little bit and pray for you. But for the rest of us, uh, let me close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the brilliance of your Son who came into a world that was warped by sin and brought a level of clarity that couldn't be found any other way. Thank you for the beautiful reminder that the world in which we live is not the way you intended it to be. And thank you for the grace when we fall short of your standard because we all fall short of your standard. Thank you that you offer us every morning new grace and new hope as you invite us to follow after the example of your son. For those of us looking ahead to the holiday season, um, with a lot of anxiety, I pray that, that your spirit 
would help them wrestle with what we've discussed today. And that hope for healthier relationships might rise in their heart as they open themselves up to really seeking to embody not just truth, but also grace. But for today, we thank you. We bless you. We love you. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.